0: Thank you. Hey guys thanks for joining me for another episode of the just checking in podcast this podcast is brought to you by bent a place where everyone but especially men and boys can open up about their mental health issues break down stigmas and start conversations with me your host freddie cocker each pod i check in with a very special guest we have an atta and chat about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about if it helps that person with their mental health we discuss it One of my favourite football podcasts is Football Clichés, which is run by The Athletic and hosted by Adam Hurry. It started off as a niche podcast for the football nerd and football purist and has slowly leaked its way into corners of the media and popular culture, pointing out people's not-so-subtle slips into football clichés like what a player he was, by the way, and every time someone announces their football team on Radio 2's Popmaster for them to say immediately afterwards for my sins. In this episode, I'm checking in with one of the regular panellists on football cliches and a successful football journalist in his own right. Charlie Eccleshire is the Tottenham Hotspur correspondent for The Athletic UK. He also co-hosts the Spurs podcast, View from the Lane, and appears regularly on the Totally Football podcast as well. In this episode, we discuss Charlie's journey into sports journalism, starting off at the Press Association before moving to The Telegraph, and now The Athletic UK's office. For industry issues, we talk about the constant pressure and slight anxiety of putting yourself out there, in quotation marks, that journalists like Charlie do with his comment pieces and articles and the regular scrutiny that comes with it. Charlie openly admits he checks the comments on all of his articles which he's self-aware of and we discuss whether that's a healthy thing in such a toxic social media environment like football Twitter. We also discuss the lack of social mobility currently in the journalism industry and what needs to happen to address it. Finally for Charlie's mental health we discuss a breakup he went through with his now wife a few years ago, the grief he experienced through it and how he overcame it and got back to a healthy place with his mental health. So this is how my conversation with Charlie Eccleshare went. Charlie Eccleshire, welcome to the Just Checking Pod. For the listeners who might be thinking why well, I've got a slightly drier voice than normal, this is at time of recording the day after my football team, Huddersfield Town, have secured their place in the playoff final, in the championship. So if my voice does cut out a little bit throughout this podcast, I can only apologise. Charlie, it's a pleasure to be in the presence of niche football podcast royalty. So how are <laughs> you, mate? And uh, you've, um, you've also got a book out coming out you've just announced at time of recording as well
1: yes announce that today as we record yeah which is is linked to that niche football podcast mm. that you refer to though it's becoming more and more mainstream we've got a live show actually as well which i can plug here in july oh um, send me the link
0: for that mate, I'm, mate i'll try yes, and come along yeah. i will
1: do but yeah the book is building on that it's about football commentary and it's sort of um like a pastiche of a poetry anthology with me basically it's got a bunch of Famous commentary excerpt some less famous, presented as poems, and then me kind of analysing the text as if they were actual poems. It's kind of my love letter to football commentators. Those who listen to the football cliches will know I do. Have Ian a bit Dark of is one. <laughs> yeah, and a bit, just a bit of a fascination for them. I think it's just an amazing thing that they do, and I think football fans generally are quite fascinated with them, whether they sort of consciously or not. But talk about this in the foreword to the book that like. Yeah I just remember having at the Athletics Christmas party last year quite a heated discussion going on with like five or six people about football commentators and you know really getting into the weeds and analysing them in quite some depth and obviously we're not necessarily a representative cross-section of wider society but amongst the sorts of people
0: who listen to cliches anyway I think yeah commentators certainly matter. Excellent I'll try and not quote as many in jokes from your podcast as possible but I'm, i might get tempted at some point so yeah we'll see how this goes one of my favorite things in commentary speaking of that unpc un-pc gaffes from co-commentators so i'll, I'll, I'll quote a few to few of those off end <laughs> so i don't get cancelled are you ready to start the show mate yes let's do it, it. Let's start the pod by talking about your journey into sports journalism, mate. So tell me how and why you became inspired to be one where your love for writing about football or storytelling about football and the journey to where you are today. Yeah, so I always wanted to do it. It was kind of the profession
1: that made the most sense to me. Like most kids, when they realised they couldn't be a professional footballer themselves, it was kind of the next best thing. And I was always more into essay writing subjects at school, like English and history, and history was my degree. And yeah I just always thought that would be the career that could marry up that sort of passion and interest in writing with that sort of fascination and obsession really with sport. I mean football and tennis were the ones when I was growing up I think like a lot of young boys you know just got really obsessed and it was just such a big part of my life and obviously still is watching football playing football talking about football all of those associated elements and then I wanted to do it. And then I actually, which I slightly regret, but I think it's like, is maybe understandable. Like when I graduated from university, it was quite a difficult jobs market. I was told, you know, nothing in journalism, nothing going around. So I kind of thought, okay, well, I better get an actual job. So I got on like a grad scheme for like a PR public affairs type company. Did that for a few years and it was good. It was a really good company, but I just kind of had this, I was kind of like, I do feel I should give sports journalism a go at least. So I quit that and did like a conversion course, I guess, into journalism at the Press Association. And from there, I was quite lucky. It was like the time of the 2014 World Cup. So I got shifts at the Evening Standard. And then that became a regular thing and did a a few shifts at the Mail. And that was only for a few months. And then a job came up at the Telegraph. uh, And I was really lucky to get that. And then did that for like five years and then moved to the Athletic when they started in the UK in 2019. So yeah, it was kind of fortuitous in some ways. But yeah, that was kind
0: of how it happened. Going back to that decision to move from the Telegraph to the Athletic, you said to me off air it was a really tricky decision because you were in quite a good role at the Telegraph, you were enjoying yourself and much like a football transfer, when did you hear about the Athletic's interest and was it an easy decision? (laughs) It was very much like that because... I mean at that time
1: and now the Athletica side there's very little movement you know people Mm. don't really the colonists and
0: stuff and especially like yeah yeah
1: Yeah, I mean like people just have the jobs staff jobs at papers are so precious it's such an employer's market that you know there are far more people wanting jobs than there are jobs going round so for me getting that staff job so quickly at the Telegraph was amazing and then within it it's kind of hard to move move up because there are people there who just obviously have great jobs and they're going to hold on to them so then when the athletic came along it completely shook everything up and was incredibly exciting but i really liked working at the telegraph i had great colleagues i got to do really interesting stuff and i'm naturally i don't take decisions lightly i tend to think about them quite a lot and i had a sort of i think a lot of people Because then when I was making the decision, I was talking to people and then have done subsequently. And they've all said, you know, yeah, changing jobs is a really big decision. So I don't think I'm alone in kind of agonizing and deliberating over it. But ultimately, I just thought it would be a lot of fun and I'd probably regret not taking the opportunity. And Alex Kajelski, who was heading up and does head up the Athletic UK, was just very convincing in what he said. And he's just such an amazing person and boss that I thought I do really want to work. With this person, and I wanna, you know, he's challenging, he pushes you, but I was like, I wanna push myself. I just thought I've gotta give this a go. So I'd be lying if I said it was an easy decision. I think for some people it was because they were unhappy where they were, but I wasn't. I was really happy where I was. But I was I also did think you're hearing at that time I was hearing some of the names that were made. Everyone was going. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And you know, these people who had far more to lose than I did. You know, when you're hearing like David Ornstein, Danny Taylor, Ollie Kay, people like that, you're like, okay, well, if they're moving from the Times, Guardian, BBC, and they're like right at the top of their game, then clearly something's going on
0: here. So it wasn't an easy decision, but I'm I'm really pleased that I made it. You now cover just Spurs at The Athletic, along with Jack Pitbrook, and you've done so since you joined in September 2019. Now, as a journalist, did that take a while to adjust to, having been, I imagine, more of a generalist football journalist up until that point? So the only comparison I can probably give to the listeners is like when you go from GCSEs to A-levels or (laughs) A-levels to your university degree and you have to dramatically reduce the amount of subjects you cover. Yeah, that's quite a good comparison, actually.
1: I mean, especially as I was also doing tennis at The Telegraph. So my brief was much more wide-ranging. And that was one of the considerations. I knew that would be the thing I'd miss the most, was doing tennis. And that is the thing I miss, you know, and I hope at some point I can do that again. I mean, the biggest challenge was I'd never been, like, a beat reporter. And I was definitely nervous about doing that because it's such a different skill, especially for one as big as Tottenham. Tottenham's a massive club and, you know, I think like most people starting a new role, you've got that slight imposter syndrome, mm. feeling like a bit of a fraud. Like, are they aware that I haven't really done this before and <laughs> I'm coming here with no Spurs contacts? And and they did. And they did it on trust that I'd work really hard and do what I needed to do. And that is what I've done. But, yeah, certainly at the beginning you are like and you're competing. You know, the people who cover Spurs, some of them are doing it for like 10, 20 years and are really, really good the degree thing's a good comparison because I think a lot of people would think, maybe less so Spurs because they're such a big club, but a lot of people would think like, How do you find things to write about? In the same way some degrees might seem quite niche. But then when you're in it, you're like, No, there is so much to cover. Especially a team like Tottenham, a club like Tottenham. There's just always things going on. Which makes it challenging as well. You know, it's it's rarely quiet. But it's such a good thing to learn. And especially like in journalism or sports journalism, anyway, football is by far the hardest sport to cover because it's by far the most popular. There's so much competition. The access is bad compared to other sports. You know, other sports want you to write about them. Football's the yeah. opposite. They don't need you. They would happily not have you around. <laughs> so you're <laughs> scrapping around for things and you've really got to build your contacts to find out anything interesting because you're not going to get spoon-fed things. So I think I've learned a huge amount. And and that was partly why I wanted to do it. You know, I just wanted to learn and improve as a reporter. And I think it's good to, to have quite a specialised role for a bit. And then if you want to broaden out and generalise more, you can do that later on. But... When it comes to learning the key skills i think it's been amazing education
0: we've come to my favorite part of the podcast which is football cliches now tell me how you got involved in it and how has exploded ironically into a mainstream podcast about niche topics in football so like the best example i could give is how every person now says what a something something is by Mm. the way like to the Mm. point where there was one episode where i actually laughed like quite loudly on the train when it was talking about the snooker and i'm a big snooker fan and it was when john <laughs> parrot was talking about what a horse what that a horse was that by, horse, the by the way <laughs>
1: yeah i think that was the uh the peak of that genre well what's so funny about that is like me and adam used to work together at the telegraph and we would from time to time be on like night editing shifts and there are two of you together you're sort of doing everything and you're just sort of chatting for a lot of the night and we realized quite quickly we were quite kindred spirits we're both kind of obsessed with 90s football and that sort of thing we both like to do impressions and mess around don't get me started on impressions mate literally i can do (laughs) like hundreds of them so (laughs) (laughs) so there's yeah so we always uh we kind of bonded over that i suppose what a so-and-so he was, by the way. That started, I used to do like an Andrew Castle impression and that was a lot of a man who knows a thing or two. Oh, he's yeah, big, he loves it. He, yeah, yeah, He's yeah. big into that. And Adam's thing was always what a player he was, by the way. So we kind of have combined those two things into this kind of one generic uh, pundit <laughs> Homogenous <voice>. cliche, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like those two are such staples for anyone who watches sport it's really funny to me that these were the sorts of like football cliches is very much the sorts of conversations we would, we would have of a night shift together. And then it's just really nice that now we can do it (laughs) in a, in a proper podcast form. But yeah, when he started that podcast in January, 2020, he just asked me to be on the first episode for that reason, because he was like, we're on the same wavelength. Let's do it together kind of thing. And then it's just grown from there. Really? It's his baby. And I think he's just done such an incredible job to find a niche in the football podcast world, you know, the most crowded of crowded crowded mm. marketplaces. And he's found that niche and he's done it because he's just so good and so committed to that. And almost uncompromising, but in a in a really good way. It's absolutely not going to talk about anything, you know, serious in football or get into football analysis like that's absolutely not what it's about. And yeah, it's just a, it's a huge amount of fun and it, and it's really opened up such a nice community. Like you know, Twitter can be, as everyone knows, a really, you know, horrible place. Yeah. But generally, like, the Football Clichés community on Twitter is incredibly nice and funny and supportive. And, like, the stuff they'll <laughs> they'll, they'll, do and come up with it just is a constant source of amusement. Like, today, the day I announce my book, I've got someone photoshopping it saying forward by richard keys and those who listen <laughs> to the, the, the podcast <laughs> will, will know that richard keys is sort of my all-time hero so uh, yeah th- things like that just uh, yeah it's a constant source of amusement
0: yeah speaking of Richard Keyes and Andy Gray there is a section you have called Keys and Gray Corner which is sort of this like look at an, an un-PC broadcasting duo of yesteryear that have now ended up in Qatar and I always chuckle to myself when I listen to this section because they just come up with absolute soundbites like it's like it's like accidental partridge just yeah. constantly so I absolutely love it and do you get people coming up to you in the Richard Keyes voice going uh, "Cut, Zuma and uh, <laughs> Like, is it weird when people do that? <laughs> Kurt Azuma.
1: Yeah, not in person, but certainly the virtual equivalent of that. I mean, anything I tweet, someone generally will respond if there's someone who I'm referring to in a tweet in a kind of keysy voice, which we all know because written down, you basically just need to write the first name, full stop, surname, second, full stop, and then that gets it across. Yeah, I mean, I don't think. Certainly, Richard Geese, I don't think he's improvable as a character. He's the closest thing to a kind of Partridge Brent figure in real in life. Sport, yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, I, I, I just never seen any. It's just astounding how he just never fails to deliver. Like, I don't think you could conceive of a better character than him. He's, yeah, he's. If you combined perfect.
0: him and Richard Madeley with a little bit of Jeremy Vine, yeah. that is like the ultimate. I would yeah. say, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Madeley's another one who who does feel yeah you can't you just can't parody that
0: I no think. you can't it's unbeatable
1: i say that that's literally what we do every week but it's not <laughs> even parody because we are we're not it's not like we're, we're impersonating things he doesn't say
0: it's just playing what he does say, <laughs> it's, just, of, it's <laughs> just not <laughs> even parodying crack. it <laughs> yeah it's it's just what's the uh it, right. oh there was the one of the best i think i've heard keys was when you did that episode and it's like the best ever segue and it was something like oh my really God. horrible. And he went, so anyway, top five Brazil kits or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> cracked up on the train. There are a couple...
1: like, And I've I've got a WhatsApp group. This actually dates back to before the Clichés pod, which was basically a group dedicated to keys stuff. And I've put in there a few times, like, called off the search, like, the best non sequitur of all time this has just happened. But then he'll top it somehow. I mean, yeah, that was the one... It was about... It was some sort of geopolitical thing. I think it was about Russia and Abramovich, maybe. And then, yeah, Yeah. it was... Anyway, Anyway, top five kits of all time. Top five kits of all time. (laughs) My other favourite was when he was talking about how... What was it? It was like Lord Bernstein has been talking about the Y word. And we'll get on to that, because that's a topic I feel quite strongly about. But in this instance, it was just a key segue. And he referenced the fact that in 2011... 2011, oh, that's the uh, year we got sacked, Andy, from Sky, can you believe it, 11 years, it's just like, what, but then they did. he did find, after they'd had their usual moan about getting sacked by Sky, they then found a way back to this Lord Bernstein thing, it was just
0: it's an absolute masterclass. Could, oh, it's a marvel, it's a marvel to watch, yeah. it's like poetry in motion when I hear those clips, really is. <laughs> You've now had guests like actor Ralph Iverson. You've had the official leader of the opposition, Sakir Starmer. You've had ex Love Islanders on it. You've had the former <laughs> de- Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Jonathan Van Tam. It's starting mm. to have a very subtle influence on the rest of mainstream media. Do you think that's true, or is, it, is everyone just noticing <laughs> cliches more? <laughs> yeah, I
1: don't know. I mean, I referenced this actually on our episode the other day that I really enjoyed The rest is Politics is one of my favourite podcasts with Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart and they had a real like cliches-esque discussion about when a gate becomes a gate like a water gate like a scandal I just thought that's very cliches and I'm not suggesting for a moment they listen or that we've influenced them but I just I I quite like that and then Jonathan Van Tam obviously was like the holy grail for us to get because his footballing analogies during the pandemic were so up our streets. So I literally DM'd
0: him. Adam at one point saying, please, can you get him on? He said, it's in yeah. the works. And I was like, okay, good.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. It was just like the perfect marriage. It was like, we've had this date from the beginning. We've had a few that you just just really get it and that's really nice. I think because a lot of these things people do feel, like that's the best, you know, we had Jamie Carragher and he clearly felt really strongly about some of these things and that's great because I think people, like with football commentators, like I was saying earlier, people do feel a disproportionate amount of investment in 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 some of these like absolutely trivial topics but they do really wind us up. One of my fascinations is that people still call the Premier League the Premiership. It's a full 15 years since it was called the Premiership and yet that just remains. It's it's a source of endless fascination to me.
0: Maybe they've got an association with a beautiful day by you too and they just can't get it away.
1: They're still clinging on to when yeah. ITV had the yeah. the rights. Still clinging on 100%. three years.
0: I want to move on to industry issues before I get locked in a perpetual cycle of football cliches, mate. So the one that you wanted to discuss first was this anxiety about putting yourself out there in quotes and being mm. vulnerable as a writer to the scrutiny, maybe not in football Twitter, as you said to me off air, but in the wider sports media. So expand on that if you can, and tell me how that's affected your mental health.
1: Yeah, I think that's just like the biggest challenge, or one of the biggest challenges. The weird thing with that is, though, is, and I was talking to a colleague about this, is that we're all, to varying degrees, like egomaniacs as well. Mm. You know, you get into this because you want the praise and the affirmation, and it's amazing getting that it's so nice you know my wife's a social worker and she says to me she's like we never ever ever get praise all that happens is if something goes wrong then it's like a disaster but she's like you get positive feedback every day like you have no idea how lucky you are kind of thing which is true I I am so lucky to
0: get that now you know our refs feel mate yeah exactly praise do they yeah when it goes wrong
1: (laughs) it's a similar kind of thing you know no one um yeah they don't it's a largely a thankless task yeah, my wife and Mike Dean, very, very similar. <laughs> I
0: might I might edit that out if, if you request it afterwards. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that would get picked up by the aggregators. Yeah. But yeah, obviously then within, within that, you are also putting yourself out there. And someone like The Athletic has a really, really engaged and intelligent readership. And so under your articles, you're getting that level of critiquing off which also makes it more rewarding when they say nice things. But you know, often you will get people questioning why you've done this or why you've said that or, but wait a minute, didn't you say that once upon a time? Or, yeah, you might go on a podcast and say something that people disagree with. So, yeah, I think that that is a challenge, you know, and it's not, you're aware that first thing I do often when I start my day is I go onto Twitter, check my notifications, or I go onto an article that's gone up overnight and see the comments. And clearly that is not a healthy thing to do. But it's very addictive, mm. that sort of dopamine hit of nice comments and the slight obsession, I guess, that we all have, those of us who do jobs like mine, with how it's being received. And so you can get in that trap of slightly governing your life and your sense of self-worth by how others feel, which you, which is, a you know, obviously a dangerous place to be. So, yeah, that that is a challenge. And also there's that thing of comparing yourself with others. I found this especially when I was at the Telegraph and I was sort of jostling for position and, you know, often not doing as much stuff as I wanted to do, feeling that I should be doing more and then seeing other people who you benchmark yourself against doing those types of things. I think that's hard for people. And I'm lucky now because I broadly, I feel very privileged with where I am and the things I do and the opportunities I have. But yeah, of course, there are still times when when that happens or, you know, covering a club like I do someone else gets a story and, and either you think god I was nowhere near that or you're annoyed you're like ah, I was close to that and if I'd pushed that a bit more I could have got it and then I'd be getting all the adulation that this person's getting and you're aware that it's a very small world it's a very small corner of Twitter which is a kind of bubble that journalists are obsessed with but not the wider population isn't but it's very easy to believe that your world is extremely important, especially as like my Twitter is obviously dominated by Tottenham and you know there are aggregators and all sorts. So, yeah, you can get sucked into this sort of vortex of thinking what you do is the
0: absolute be-all and end-all. Have you managed to get on top of that in recent months, weeks, years? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the hard thing is that
1: I mean, it sounds sort of, um, I don't know, like, uh, I don't, how can I say it without sounding immodest? But like the sort of bigger one's profile becomes, you get more praise, but you also inevitably get more sort abuse. Of snark, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, and abuse. So it's kind of about managing that, I guess. Mm. I think also like my way of being on Twitter is very unconfrontational. Like I'm generally a very warm kind presence or at least i try to be you don't feed think, the abuse you don't get stuck yeah, in with those stuff. i just yeah. don't that's I, do. like, I don't do
0: that there's no point yeah. There. yeah
1: and you know that's definitely from a selfish point of view the best way to be there are times when i think should i be calling stuff out should i be you know spending hours doing that and arguing with people and i don't because i don't feel i have the time or the energy mm. but then i'm like is that being selfish because should you be calling out stuff that you see it's, it's sort of a difficult balance it's hard it depends how much you think people are actually going to engage with you
0: properly or whether it just becomes and twitter as well like face to face well that's you the thing do it in it if someone challenges you or or you challenge yeah. someone i should say but on twitter it's a random comment just like i don't need to see the point. yeah
1: exactly so actually like and i've said this before that like if on twitter someone swears at me or something like that that i can just like that's fine i just ignore that it's harder if someone's like it's an athletic reader who's like really engaged and is like going into your piece or you've done an interview and They're like oh i noticed you didn't ask this question or whatever you know like it's really like do you granular. like the job <laughs> yeah yeah it's really granular feedback and there are times when you are kicking yourself because you're like fair play yeah i should have asked that or i i could have done that a bit better or i did word that a bit clumsily i think i manage it in the sense that generally how i am with my own mental health is to kind of think if i'm feeling something the chances are i'm not alone in thinking that or that it's a fairly normal rational response to this like I don't think it's unusual when you have a big output you're constantly putting yourself out there with your written broadcast whatever it is of course you're going to feel sometimes a bit like oh god I hope this goes down I I just feel like that's a
0: fairly rational response but Mm. there are times when it's challenging I want to move on to the second and final issue you want to discuss in the industry through a mental health lens, Charlie, which is access. And I'm sure you've probably seen some statistics which came out recently, which were pretty depressing about the disproportionate level of privately educated journalists in the industry. So what's your perspective on this topic? Uh, Yeah, I think it's a
1: massive, massive issue and it's something... I've spoken about a lot. And, and also, I, before anyone accused me of hypocrisy, hands up, I'm privately educated. So I'm massively part of the problem. I mean, I couldn't be more what the industry is. You know, someone who went to a private school, has relatives in the industry, has family friends in the industry. So it was ne- it was always an industry that felt very open to me. And that's just not the case for the vast majority of people. And what's to try and do something anything because social mobility is so bad in this country so bad and you know journalism is one of the worst because it relies on people to do unpaid work basically unpaid work experience again something i did basically means unless you're wealthy and well supported you can't do it there's also such a massive london bias you know that's where pretty much all the national newspapers are based that unless you're based in london or have relatives in London who can put you up for free, then you're screwed. Basically, so there is this situation where it is a very, very homogenous group of people, and that is bad for the industry because it means you don't have the diversity of storytelling. That's a big issue, and so a lot, of, a lot of people don't feel represented by the media. And I have to say, like, the Athletic is—I'm proud to work for someone that is really trying to take steps to address that as much as it can. Like, it is really trying to have as diverse a workforce as possible and also because and again this is what I mean like it's not about doing that as a sort of charitable gesture more diverse you are the better you are as a media organization you can actually tell different stories and stand out rather than having people with the same biases and the same prejudices and you know I um have mentored for the Prince's Trust for the last six years and that's actually not Journalism necessarily—that's more just giving a young person who's not in work or education some of the support that they're not necessarily privileged enough to get. Because often we think of people going to private schools, we think about just the teaching they get, whatever, which is a part of it. But also, a lot of those people have such a leg up with family members or family friends or whoever who can help them with their CV or cover letters or you know coach them before an interview. All of these sorts of things that kind of perpetuate that situation. Like I've done talks at local state schools talking about getting people into journalism. And the hard thing is, is that I know from going to some of them that a lot of people just don't think it's an industry that's open to them. You can sort of, you you can tell that. And so it can almost feel demotivating if you're someone like me, you come in and you prep all your stuff and you're kind of looking at sometimes, not always, but sometimes kind of blank faces. But I guess, A, you have to hope that maybe someone there is inspired or whatever. And also that that change, I mean, there are so many things that need to happen for that to change, but only by kind of trying to tell people that this is a world that's open to them makes it feel a bit more possible rather than just, you know, the same people getting it. So it's it's, it's a really, really big issue. And I don't pretend to have all the answers, but I do think the first step has to be that admission from places that A, this is a problem, And B, this
0: is why it's a problem, and that if we can try and address that, then I think everyone benefits. What do you think some of the solutions could be then? Is it banning unpaid work internships? Is it more paid work experience opportunities? Is it hiring journalists without master's journalism degrees as kind of the accepted route for a lot of journalists seems to be that they have to do that conversion course or they have to do that extra course to be able to break Mm. in? What are some of the things that should happen or could happen even? Yeah, I think all of those are good suggestions. I mean, definitely
1: the unpaid work experience, I think, is a real issue. And that is really puts a lot of people on the back foot. Yeah, I don't know how much people need to do that master's degree or postgraduate. I don't know how essential that should be. It never used to be in journalism. And I've known some incredible journalists who left school at 16 and, you know, worked their way up. So I do think that needs to be a change of emphasis. But also, you know, there's an issue, and I know some of the big universities are trying to address this with kind of how many privately educated people they take versus state school educated people. But there are, I mean, it's such a hard, yeah, such no a hard one. one because, yeah, I get what you're no, saying. there isn't. And, and even like with the university admissions, do you, and I was listening to someone from Oxford talking about this the other day, that there is a challenge because are you comparing just academic results In which case, people who went to a private school are going to be at an advantage often because they've been spoon-fed to a large extent. Or are you taking in lots of other factors and going on potential and this sort of thing, but then how far do you go with that? And you could argue, how fair is that? There's not a right answer. It, It is really difficult. But I definitely think employers need to look at that and then thinking about kind of how can we channel whatever diversity it is that we have how can we make sure that these people have a voice so that we're not just covering the same old things Mm -hmm. you know what's important to this community and are they represented enough but look it's really hard and and I am a white privately (laughs) educated male so I'm kind of the worst person to be pushing this but I do think at least at at least you're trying, which is more than a lot of your colleagues, which is, you know, which is something. Yeah. Yeah. I I just think it's about having an awareness of one's privilege at least, and then not being precious and fragile about it if you're called out about it.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, I've spoken to Jake Cameron, who's a, comes from a working class background. He's a brilliant conflict journalist. And, you know, he's spoken to me about class in the industry and accentism as well. So it's not just coming into the newsroom. It's what your experience is like in the newsroom if you're surrounded by people who are of a completely different background to you and might not have the same values or they might belittle someone who's got a regional accent you know things like that which come into play as well so i think it's it's not just getting in the newsroom it's feeling like the newsroom is a welcoming environment for you when you're in there yeah for sure and I think a lot of people have that at university as well um, I had that and I'm a middle-class East Londoner yeah, I, got, yeah. I got called Joe Essex when I went to Sussex so. really yeah. <laughs> yeah
1: no I remember like yeah a friend of mine is from Manchester I remember and this is going back some but like me and others would like routinely impersonate his accent and you just think that is like the lamest most like unfunny thing but it just felt like a very normal thing to do now you know I imagine now people of that age are more aware and more mature to to do so there's a line there but, isn't
0: there like I never cared too much about it but it's when it starts dripping into like the sneering side which I never really was a fan of but yeah yeah which that
1: and, and that's not something I was doing but even just like doing it just so reflects the fact that to you London is normal and anything yeah. else is different and alien which is just a very like uncomfortable thing mm. an uncomfortable sort of bias and prejudice to be showing about yourself
0: Let's reflect on your journey now on journalism, Charlie. So what has it taught you about yourself, do you think? Um, That's a good question. I guess
1: like a degree of resilience, I suppose. You sort of have to show that. Yeah, like linking back to what we are talking about before, accepting that there are going to be times when you do feel a bit vulnerable and exposed because you are sort of Constantly putting yourself out there, I think also just like learning from other people, sort of seeing what other people do, how they carry themselves, and how they operate, you sort of get a sense for what it is that impresses you and how you want to be and the kind of people that treat others well and you know how you want to be you know because there is a kind of or at least there was a fairly like macho element to being in journalism and i've I've seen elements of that. Not massively, certainly not like the Athletic or the Telegraph, really. But yeah, you do see that. I guess it's kind of like you choose what it is, the kind of journalist you want to be. And I'm sure there are others who are more ruthless than I am. And there are times where they would have written things that I've decided not to because either I was worried about how it would affect the person in in question or I was worried about would it betray my source, you know. And some people are more like, fuck it, I've got this story, I'm just going to do it. And I think just sort of realising there isn't, in a way, there isn't a right and wrong. There are some benefits to treating people well. You might not see until further down the line or you might not ever concretely know that you know there was a benefit to it. There are also benefits to being ruthless and cutthroat and single-minded. But I think if you try and be that person when it's not natural to you i think that's when you can sort of tie yourself up in knots a bit so that sounds very sort of american high school film but (laughs) being true to yourself i do think that is quite
0: important we've talked about your journalism journey and sports journalism journey mate let's dive a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey so I ask all my special guests this question first: walk me through early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Charlie we meet here? <laughs> okay,
1: just going back. I think generally, I've been quite lucky to have pretty good mental health, but obviously not without challenges at various points. I had a really nice childhood. Like I was a, I had an older, I have an older brother who's three years older. And I think that when you're young can be quite challenging and had lots of older cousins. And I do remember feeling like definitely having those feelings of like, they're so much bigger, they can do so much more. And I think I was quite anxious at that age, certainly in a kind of, in that environment. But I think then, but if you've got an older sibling, then when you're with your peers at school, you then feel more grown up almost. And you're protected so, if they're any sort of good with their yeah. Fists, So <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So yeah, like I really enjoyed school growing up and that sort of thing and, I, and I'm very close to my family like I had a really very privileged upbringing all the way through really enjoyed my secondary school as well and then on to university so I think like it wasn't something I ever really thought about too much and then obviously as you get a I think the way society has changed you just become a lot more aware we've become a lot more aware of these issues and you probably as you get older reflect on them a bit more deeply and i think just like living on twitter as i have to do as a journalist you are more aware and also when i was at the telegraph i did a lot on the topic of mental health and depression and these sort of things often interviewing sportsmen and sportswomen who were who were suffering in some way so it's definitely been for me more a kind of growing awareness of it and trying to like i said before like i think trying to be kind to myself and yeah, generally when I'm feeling something thinking I'm pro- yeah I'm probably not totally alone or this isn't totally unusual I guess like some in some ways I think I'm not so extraordinary that how I am is yeah literally extraordinary out of the ordinary you know it's that generally what I'm feeling is fairly
0: standard and typical and and I guess you know for better or worse. The main point in your mental health journey you want to discuss, mate, is a breakup you went through with your now wife and then girlfriend in your early 20s. So tell me how that affected your mental health when it happened, as you described it or compared it to as a period of grief.
1: Mm. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was a very like textbook stages of grief and going all through that, you know, the anger and bargaining. I felt just like really, really upset and low and quite angry and I've, I've always had this thing of like railing against injustice but injustice I, I'd love to say that was like campaigning for peace in the Middle East I more mean in a really parochial self about myself so if I felt like I was being unfairly characterized or I should have got this extra mark in a test or whatever, you know mm-hmm. just like pathetic little things like that and so I guess with that there was an element of like why does this happened to me Why is it not happening to any of my friends? You know, why is it my girlfriend who's turned around and done this? And yeah, I just think it was quite, it's just quite bleak. That feeling of constantly feeling down and that feeling of longing. I remember thinking it was just really interesting because you realise that, you know, the whole thing of like, oh, hi, how are you? And there'd be times I felt like really Quite bad, and obviously, just not you know like the idea of someone saying that to you in the office, and you actually answering honestly would just be that they'd be like, "What is wrong with this person?" It was mm. you know, it's just asking how are you as like, I man which a is
0: energy two, in you know? itself to lie, uh, basically. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get, yeah that's a, that's a really good point.
1: Yeah, you are putting on a front, and also because you kind of feel like you've only got so many uh, sort of tokens to use up with each individual friend or family member. You might pour your heart out to them, say you're feeling really bad. Kind of where the next time you see them, you're like, okay, I can't do that again. You know, I've got, to, um, that's not really fair on them. You know, I've given them that treatment once. So the next time I've just got to put on a brave face.
0: Did um, you find disclosure repetition hard as well? Sort of telling loads of people who ask like, oh, how's it going with X? And yeah, like, oh, we broke yeah, up. yeah. Oh, how's it yeah. going with X? Oh, we yeah, broke up. Like, totally. And it's so embarrassing and so awkward.
1: Yeah, that is a really hard thing. Then, then there's that next stage of people kind of tiptoeing around it because you know they're aware you're aware they know that was really draining and it also coincided with a time in my life where that was like a year after university so I was I wasn't doing the journal you know I wasn't really Mm. sure of what I was doing and so it all sort of and maybe the link you know I do often think that because we literally we got back together just as I sort of was starting out in journalism and I do wonder if on some level that kind of happiness with that element universe of life. meeting yeah. yeah yeah it kind Convalescing, of like blessing, yeah yeah it just maybe was i then more i don't know happy in myself and more sort of ready for that i don't mm.
0: know how did you get back to a stable place with your mental health before you got back together with your partner well
1: i guess like there's an extent to which it was sort of self-preservation of like because this thing, we, we were broken up for like four and a half years. Like it was a really long time. It wasn't mm. like a few months and then we're back together. So I guess you just, you sort of make peace with the fact that like, okay, well that was where I was. And I'm raising my hand here for those who can't see, <laughs> which is everyone. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can't get as happy as I was, but that's sort of okay. And I'm just going to be a bit lower down in that respect, but I can still enjoy myself and be Broadly happy. So it's kind of a I guess a making peace with it. Because what other alternatives do you have? You know, you're not getting the one thing you really want. Nothing can change that. So what do you do? You just remain miserable and in mourning? Or do you move on and I guess suppress it, really? I mean, that's the sad thing. And I don't know how much of an ef- you know, I don't know how much of an effect that had. On me because I think I don't think I think most people if they knew me because I'm a pretty outgoing gregarious extroverted person so I don't think that necessarily would have shown but yeah I, I guess the way I got back to like an even keel was just an acceptance
0: that mm. that was how it was going to be. So then what were you like? after you did get back together with your partner? Did it feel like closure? Did it feel like that big moment you had been waiting for when you were in the midst of that breakup? Or did your mind also maybe think it was a risk? Like, I don't want to get hurt again.
1: Yeah, well, I I didn't I mean, I knew it was a risk, but I also was like, I just... There's just no way I'm not going to take this opportunity. I just knew that. Like, there was Mm. no point even paying lip service to the idea that, like, yes, I knew it was a risk, but I knew I had to take it, so there was no point pretending I was really... Deliberating over that, it was quite a slow burn as well because we we'd been apart for so long. It was kind of like let's take it really slow, and I was probably more just like fuck that, like let's just you know go crack into- on, yeah, yeah basically. Yeah. But it was that was definitely like a sensible way to do it. It was a, I mean, yeah, I guess there were some like bumps in the road in the first maybe year or so, but it was broadly a pretty seamless transition back. And it's interesting because I do know quite a few of my friends who've then who have done similar things. Despite it, at the time, feeling crazy and, you know, never go back or, that, you know, that, a football cliche. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think for both of us, it just felt right. I don't think that Lizzie was wrong for us to break up when we did. I think it was the right thing and it might not have worked out had we stayed together. You know, you, there are lots of couples who don't. Staying together all the way from university forever is a, is tough. So I think it was definitely for the best. And then we were then at a point where it was like, okay, we can actually, we're yeah, we're ready now.
0: So who's a Charlie we meet at this point compared to those two different periods? Compared to before the breakup, mm-hmm. in between the breakup, and when you got back together?
1: Uh, right, that's a good question. Well, I, I think like there's just more of like a vulnerability, I suppose, or a woundedness after you've had something like that happen to you. Until it happens to you just you don't really think it will. I've had a very fortunate, charmed life that, I guess that that was like part of the challenge with it. I was just like, I'm not used to having this sort of, you know, shock. Yeah. yeah, I've been so lucky throughout my life and then get this massive slap in the face. It's kind of like, what, how has this happened? Why has this (laughs) happened? So I think it takes away some of that complacency and maybe makes you a bit more fatalistic. I don't know. You know, Mm. that something can just go wrong out of nowhere. I do also think I did manage to stay broadly, like, I wasn't, like, totally beating myself up in that in-between period. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah, well, I think, (laughs) like, because I sometimes do, like, don't get me wrong, I'm often pretty harsh on myself. I think in that instance it was more, I don't think I've done loads wrong here, which helped, but then also leaves you with that feeling of, like, bafflement a bit if I had I'd have regrets about doing things but you know then at least you, it might be clearer to you but I think it's still better it was still better the way it was that, that, mm. that I had it like that but yeah yeah you're just a little bit more self-aware as well like I think I am quite self-aware and self-critical and things like that definitely force you to be
0: and as a final question as we reflect on this journey before we move on to our quick fire mental health chat questions if you could go back and talk to those three different Charlies in the midst of of that breakup what would you say to him knowing what you do now well the main thing is i'd be like don't worry because in four and a half
1: years you'll get back together yeah. so it's, all, <laughs> it's all absolutely that's fine. the easy answer mate that's not the difficult
0: answer
1: <laughs> yeah that's one of those things i'm like if i'd known that god life would have been a lot easier you're right that no that is a, that is a cop out i don't know i mean i guess i would just say be kind to yourself and that was actually a big thing and i do think i was quite good at that with throughout it was like you constantly have a choice to make when something like that happens like you can be really harsh on yourself and really make your own life very difficult and there would be times I did that of course there would because how can you not or you try and like lift yourself up sometimes out of your hands I remember like in that process I'd be like I've had a good day you know I haven't really thought about her too much and then you have a dream or something and you're like, you've fucking bastard why is my unconscious (laughs) such a prick like just let me have a dream free night and it's like this is (laughs) but yeah with your conscious mind anyway trying to be as kind as possible i think is it's good
0: we've come to our final topic of conversation charlie and it's one i try and have with all of my special guests it's a general natter and quick chat about our mental health so firstly how would you say your mental health is at the moment mate i think it's good
1: not without challenges like you know the stuff we've talked about yeah that sort of pressure and the feeling exposed but yeah i think yeah i think it's all
0: right excellent and what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health <sighs> that's a really good question um probably like mid-teens To
1: some extent. Like I wouldn't have characterised it in those terms then. I wouldn't have had the maturity or the knowledge of mental health as a topic. But yeah, I'd say around then you start thinking like, God, yeah, I'm feeling pressures here or I'm I'm feeling this way because of that. And it's, yeah, it's nothing to do with the physical thing.
0: And then tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health. So who was it with? What impact did it have? And at the time, did it feel like a big moment or a big burden or weight of lift off your shoulders or did it feel like something quite insignificant easy and normal to do that's a difficult one as well because again i
1: don't know if i would ever have like characterized it in that way i mean i can remember i remember speaking to someone and they were talking about like anxiety they were feeling mm-hmm. and this sort of thing and and i i do remember feeling so out of my depth i mean i was young i was probably at this point like late teens, early 20s, and just not really... You couldn't relate to it. Yeah. I couldn't relate yeah. to it because I was yeah. just like, but... W-. I was so out of my depth. They were saying how they just felt really anxious, they felt inadequate, and I was trying to rationalise it to them in like a, no, but why do you feel that? You've got loads going for you, da-da-da-da-da, like completely thinking that it was just like a, you know, a sort of maths equation that I could just break <laughs> it down for them and they'd be like, oh yeah, you're right, I do have lots going for myself, I no longer feel anxious. But like that was sort of how unsophisticated my understanding was of those things you know there's an innocence I guess that I had there maybe Mm. in a sort of pre-social media age I mean what there was social media there was kind of Facebook and things like that but yeah I wasn't really aware of them so much it took me I would say quite a lot longer before I really thought of them and I guess yeah I mean probably that post breakup time
0: was when I really started thinking about those sorts of feelings what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health so it could be things people say to you it could be a sound a sensation being in a particular social environment or have you not figured all of them out yet mm, i think i am like like most people
1: i think i have a degree of insecurity and so if i feel that i'm being questioned in some way then that makes me feel like oh why are they saying that? You know, what's that based on? Is there an an ad- it. Yeah, I hate that. Yeah, so long. <laughs> yeah, like, is there is there an inadequacy there? And then that makes me reflect on, like, well, why does that bother me so much? Why do I care so much about that sort of thing? Yeah, it's it's those sort of things. And it can be little. That, you know, if I feel that, like, something I'm good at is being overlooked or something I've said is being overlooked, It's kind of like, and this is what I mean about that injustice in a verticomas thing. It's like, I find quite triggering in a a way that I I shouldn't really.
0: And then conversely then, mate, what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked? And maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Yeah, so I think one
1: that I mentioned before of trying to reassure myself that things I'm feeling aren't completely out of the ordinary, I have found that really useful. The other thing as well is just like, allowing yourself to feel crap at times and, and that was definitely something after that breakup of like it is perfectly okay to feel that way it would be weird if you weren't that definitely helped on the other side i don't know maybe i'm not self-aware enough to know what doesn't work i mean definitely like comparing myself to others isn't is is rarely is rarely healthy or helpful As tempting as it
0: is to do that sometimes I've got two questions left. So the first one is, what is the best book or as I call it mental health bible you've read for your mental health? Now it can be mental health related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. Not sure. And if it isn't a book, a film, a TV show, play, podcast. There's a
1: good book I read I read on parenting by Philippa Perry, The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read and Your Children Would Be Glad That You Did, which I found really helpful. You know, it's a classic thing actually, you know, you become a dad for the first time and you are massively like what am I doing and am I doing a good job or not and that and that book is really useful at reassuring you that it's hard for a start and that it's normal to beat yourself up a bit and if you are making mistakes in inverted commas then again chances are lots of other people have made them before and it's kind of about reflecting on them and just trying to do your best and I I, yeah I found that really helpful for kind of taking away some of the pressure that I felt and
0: do feel about having having a son and as a final question what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds or walks of life feel comfortable feel safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it
1: I think people being as open as they can obviously makes a massive difference but I also think people sometimes stop actually thinking about the hypocrisy of you know we we applaud people when they come out and speak about their mental health, and often they'll talk about cultures and that sort of thing, and the reason they didn't was because of the culture of feeling that it wouldn't go down well and this sort of thing and we applaud them and then in the next breath, we're abusing people for behaving in a certain way, and it's like, well, you wonder why people didn't feel enabled to come out and speak about these things? I think as well something i I've noticed is sometimes it's not badly intentioned, but there's sometimes too much of a rush to praise people for being brave. You know, you see it all the time in sport, incredible bravery shown by ex-athlete because they performed only a day after they had a tragedy in their personal
0: life. Yeah, that's never sat right with me.
1: And I think, okay, fair play to that person. If that's how they want to deal with that grief and that's what's comfortable to them, that's totally fine. But by praising it, I kind of feel that's suggesting that if you don't do that, you're not brave and
0: you're weak. 100%.
1: And then we'll sort of wonder why sports people feel that they're in a kind of macho culture where they can't show weakness. And it's like, well, we're Mm. kind of all tacitly a part of it if we are doing that dance of saying, like, what a hero,
0: you know, just a day after Mm. their sister was unwell. You know, whatever it is, like, it's just... yeah. I don't know, that, that... Or when managers end up getting leaked that they ask someone to play when they've had something happen to them two days after, or a chairman yeah. asks a manager to do it two days after, or a tragedy, and then the player feels ridiculously pressured because they think, well, am I going to play? Yeah. I want to play. So I'll just... And then they'll say, well, I don't want to lose my place because it's, you know, football anyway. Top-level football is cutthroat. It's ruthless. If you lose your place, who knows when you're going to get it back, etc. Et yeah, you
1: see it as well with, like, players being praised for playing a game the day they had a child born. And you just think, well, okay, that's a way of showing your loyalty to your team and whatever, but I don't think that should be a kind of, that's the benchmark and that's normal and that's applauded and that shows your commitment. That doesn't feel right to me. So I, I yeah, I just think like, just think about the way in which we characterize and praise those sorts of things, because I do think it sends out a message to people about bravery and in averted commas and a good way to behave and how not to behave.
0: And on that note, Charlie Eccleshare, or shall I say, in the great Richard Keys' <laughs> voice, Charlie Eccleshare. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking podcast and talking to me, mate. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, that's all we've got time for in this episode of the Just Check In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Charlie for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me check in with him. I'll put a link to where you can follow Charlie and the Football Cliches podcast in the show notes. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues, tell your family about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you want to support us further, you can do so by going to our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com. ventshelpuk. If you don't want to do that, you can make a one-off donation to our gofundme also stay tuned for news of the next just checking in live to be announced very soon we hope to check in with you again very soon guys and remember this is always okay to.